the purr of a brand That's new Toyota. What is this? It's a Toyota Land Cruiser yeah. 2016 brand. This is not going to be afraid of uh, a bad road. No, it ma makes so many things easier, you know, like even it helps for checkpoints. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Just to it have does. like a, a robust yeah. car. Come in in like a little tiny sedan. They're just more likely to give you shit. Or I mean, it's it's car has big role man in the checkpoints. If you have like a very tiny car, you know, like it's about to be dead. You know, like they think it's going to explode in the city. Right. This, yeah, this sort of cars, you know, like it makes uh, forty percent uh, possibility to cross the checkpoint, like forty percent more. And how's it driving in uh, Erbil, an area compared to Mosul or? Everybody kind of drive the same, or is there different like micro cultures? It's way, way different. Man. Oh yeah, it's way different. What do they do? You know, uh, Erbil was dreaming to reach Mosul. You know, like in terms of everything, yeah. development, driving. Mosul stopped, and Erbil like developed. Mm. So, in in old terms, you know, like one of the things, you know, the traffic uh, people now they follow everything, uh, all the traffic. Uh, rules in, in Mosul is not yeah. like that. Yeah, man, you know, like in Mosul, imagine you know, like in one traffic light, you see maybe eighteen traffic police. You know, like and no one listens to them. <laughs> um, yeah, no one, no one. You know, it's like no one takes. It's you know, for example, if you are an officer, you know, like especially the officers in Mosul. I don't know why, or security forces, not only officers, like anyone who belongs to the security uh, forces. You know, like they feel ashamed to stop in the traffic light. They just go, you know, like, or they hunt for and... They, so they, like, it's, it's physical, visceral shame if they're stopped at a yes. red light. Yes, yeah. Like, okay. Not all of them, of I course. am an officer of the law. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a skill set that Sangar Khalil had asked for. He didn't grow up wanting to know how to cross dozens of armed checkpoints in a day. He didn't want to have 3,000 contacts in his phones not really friends and family, but an endless scroll of warlords and policemen and freelance journalists. He didn't set out to be NPR's man in Mosul, helping correspondents come to his city to document death and destruction. But war came to Mosul, and the world would be a poorer place if it didn't have Sangar and his Land Rover and his endless contact list to help make sense of what happened when ISIS took over. Fixers. Those often overlooked men and women who help arrange access and interviews and shape stories with journalists are remarkable people, the local truth-tellers without whom the professional traveling class of journalists would be even more lost than they usually are. They've saved my ass from Abkhazia to Juarez, and in places in conflict, theirs can be a very dangerous job, in the moment and for years afterward. As Sangar put it in our conversation, First off, the bad guys might go for the foreigners directly, but very soon after that, they will go for the locals who worked with foreigners. So even though Mosul is officially liberated, there's no shortage of dead-enders and would-be assassins in the region, and they would happily make Sangar pay the price for the news we've been getting all these years. I sat with Sangar at the Farik Hotel in the capital of Iraqi Kurdistan last year. We drank water, it was Ramadan after all, and talked about what it is to be a war reporter in your hometown. 
I'm Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. So, what do you want to drink? I, I, I'm actually serious. I've got two ice-cold life waters here, and they're very funny. Like, I'm, yeah, that, yeah, well, that's good. All right, good. Let's, um, let's get this set. You have a seat. I'm going to grab some two delicious life waters. Thank you. Life water here, you know, like in Iraq, makes you hate life. You know, because it does not open, you know, like soccer. The so quality of it is like very bad. But actually, this is great. This is great. Uh, this makes for great audio. Is, you can really hear yeah. that what we have here. It's almost like a Jello, right? This is like what we would get Jello in in the states. It's like this thin plastic um, cup. And you know, I just I just got in after you know twenty hours of flying or something. It, it, I felt when I took down two of these Life Waters earlier today, I thought. You know, they're right. This is life-giving. See? It makes you hate life. You've already messed it up. It's like, oh, wait, yeah, I'm doing the same. You know, like the quality of it is very bad. Yeah, so we're trying to peel the kind of metallic uh, wrapper off the top to get at our... (laughs) See, this is good radio right here. Two grown men with thick fingers <laughs> trying to open I mean, whiskey, a... Whiskey opens much softer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, take that. Well, cheers. Cheers. L'chaim to, to life. To, uh, to yeah. Ramadan. It's the first day of Ramadan. That's first day, yeah. Uh, that's why I'm so happy getting to Syria because there's no Ramadan there. Ramadan doesn't <laughs> exist, actually. <laughs> it's, a, it's a land without God at this yeah, point. Exactly. Um... Is that true? There's no well, Ramadan. I guess you know, kind of what you were saying earlier. It's kind of about social and family expectations too, right? So it's like you have to do a lot of virtuous looking stuff this month. Yeah, it's all about you know, like Ramadan. Families they gather, uh, they find reasons, you know, like to gather. Especially now, my wife's parents, you know, like uh, they moving to Erbil, so it's a good excuse all of them to come along, you know. And, gather and just watch you and see if you're I'm doing drinking right. or <laughs> <laughs> if you're doing right by their granddaughter and by their daughter yeah you know like they know no they love me <laughs> they love me <laughs> they of love course me. they love you yeah. um but you you don't want to test it um, by by showing up with a bunch of whiskey on the breath <laughs> exactly yeah it is interesting because i think there's a lot of uh you know there's there's among people in the states who are not around a lot of Muslim populations, it's just a sort of a general, a real black and white view about Ramadan and and really all of the laws that go with Islam. It's like and and just that idea of do you eat pork? Do you not eat pork? You know that they must <laughs> never do this don't stuff. Drink yeah, like don't drink and all and don't smoke in public. Yeah, in a, in a way that I think would be actually very familiar to to you know people back home you know jews or christians would like you make it up at what works for you like it's your own you know it's your own menu a la carte of what you know of godliness and sinfulness i guess that everybody puts together that's just one month of the year man that's very boring to be honest (laughs) (laughs) for me it's boring right so you'd rather you know like they wait the entire year for ramadan for me i don't man 
It sounds like you have a little a little touch of dread about Ramadan. Yeah, you know, like because I don't know, man. You know, like I never no nobody saw the other life, you know, and everyone is doing something for the other life, you know. I, and uh, I really yeah. don't believe in it. You know? Yeah, right. That's a lot of it's a lot of work, right? It is man, on yeah. on a on a hypothesis that, yeah, who does know? Who's come back from that and said? I mean, oh, it was gr- good idea, guys. Totally worth it. You know, it. for me, to be honest, yeah. uh, my job, you know, like changed a lot of things of my life. Really? One of them was this, you know, like I was one of the best Quran readers in my neighborhood in Mosul. Mm. Yeah, after uh, giving and interviewing all these religion people, religious, you know, people, uh, what religion have done to this world, I started to lose my trust, you know, like towards religion, to be honest. I yeah, because everyone is a victim, you know, like of religion, especially here in Iraq. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you just went up against... This is my idea, you know, like I'm sure like 95% of Iraqis are not going to be agree with me, you know, <laughs> right. like, but the truth is truth. I wonder how they process it, because when you say it, you know, that makes such perfect sense to me on some level. You know, you are from Mosul, which had just been in this death battle with people who thought they were the holiest dudes that ever lived, you know? It's like a total... Yeah. I mean, they it was the caliphate, and they thought God was on their side, and that anybody would just say, oh, well, once we defeat those guys, then God is cool again, like, or, you know, then the idea just kind of makes sense. I don't know. And at the end, when I saw their dead bodies on the street, you know, like, I was like, where are you, man? Are you in the other life? You know, like, who knows? Baghdad, he doesn't know where is, where is your soul now. Nobody knows, you know, like, you're just rotten here on the ground, and this is what you fought for. Yeah. This is what you did, you know, like, that's why, you know, like, Oh, like no, yeah, fuck no. Yeah, right. I mean, those guys, right? The people who uh, faced certain death at the end and certainly dealt a lot of death on their own uh, did horrible things. Yeah, I mean, for their friends, you know, like if they were instead of me, also, you know, like they would lose trust because they see their friend, his dead body's right there, you know, like not even proper burying, you know, like right. Uh, yeah. Nothing, you know, so you yeah. would lose the... Yeah, God's got to be very far from that. Yeah. Well, crap, I feel like we've, we've kind of jumped the line because I actually, you know, in, in talking about the Mosul that God had forsaken, <laughs> because I want to get to the, 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 the prior Mosul, and I wanted to kind of start there and have you tell me, okay. you know, what Mosul was like when you were growing up. Like, just, just paint a picture of, of, of that town. Mosul was like a town, you know, like every single Iraqi dreams of, you know, like even even Baghdad was dreaming to be like Mosul, you know, like, for example, all the development you see here in Erbil and Duak and Kurdistan, almost everyone was coming to Mosul to study, you know, and we were living, for me, I was living in a very poor neighborhood. I didn't know what's uh, sectarian. Nobody knew what's sectarian, what's like uh, this minority and that minority, you know, like this and that religion, so... It was very nice city, you know, but the problem mostly stopped, you know, like after 2003, you know, like uh, Mosul's yeah. dead until now. So you were growing, uh, you were growing up in the 90s. Uh, I was born in 1989. Yeah. yeah. I was growing up in the 90s. So this would have been the 90s uh, under Saddam uh, in Mosul where there were problems, but they were more economic problems. And then obviously not a lot. There of was so many problems, you yeah. know, like, but 
for me, I was a kid, you know, like I didn't understand all these things. I was just like right. enjoying until we moved, you know, like I moved, you know, properly in Mosul uh, in 2006. But I was going back there, you know, like always, you know, time by time. Um, I had I still, you know, like have so many friends there, some relatives and cousins, my soccer team. Your soccer team? Yeah. Like the one that you follow or the guys you play with? I was playing with. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, so you yeah, still go so back Yeah, so they're still there, you know, like, I, I was going there until 2010, and then, yeah, you know, like, most of my uh, very close, close uh, relatives, you know, like, um, like my uh, grandfathers, uh, they moved from Mosul, and then I stopped. They moved, and, and I, I guess part of what's crazy about coming to Iraq now, I was just, I was just telling uh, Genghis this, I'd been cleaning out uh, my apartment back in New York and saw some journal that I'd kept after September mm-hmm. 11th. Mm-hmm like September 12th, 2001, yeah. I'd like written some stuff and I was just like, this is terrible, but also it looks like we're going to start bombing Afghanistan, which mm-hmm. makes no sense to me. And like, I don't understand what is happening there. And I was like, at least I hope that it's quick. And like whatever stupidness, like however Bush needs to express himself will be over quickly, which, you know, reading yeah. 18 years later when we're still at war there and then that here in Iraq, you know, it's not just one conflict that started in 2003, but it's just an, an absolute wave of, I don't know, I mean, how how many wars, how many different phases? I mean, that's why I like my work, you know, like, well, that's one of the reasons I never quit my job, you know, like, because so many journalists, they ask me, oh, how long are you going to do this? Hmm. For me, I just lived 30 years so far. I'm living in my 30s, just entered my 30s. I saw 2003, 2006, 2010, 14, and I'm, I don't know what else is coming. Yeah. So there's always something going on here. There's always another another yeah. conflict, another another thing. I mean, that, yeah. I hope something good, you know. When, <laughs> I mean. After these five, something real good is going to happen. Yeah, you know. I mean. um, and if I go back, you know, if we go like old generations of Iraq, they saw war after war, so. Right. That's why there will be always stories to tell and to show. Yeah. Um, how how long had your family been in Mosul? I was born in Mosul. My father, you know, like they were they are from Nino Plain, actually. You know, like they were born in Nino Plain. Outside you know, of Mosul. Outside of Mosul City, yeah. you know, like yeah. still it's Mosul. Yeah, yeah. So they that's where they had been since yes. time yeah. immemorial. Yeah. Um, where did you go? Did you come straight to Erbil after? After moving from Mosul, like no, where did we, most people we went go? to a town, a small town called Bardaraj between Erbil and Duhak. And then in 2010, after I finished high, my high school there, you know, like it was very difficult for me because from Arabic flew to Kurdish, yeah, which is totally different. I lost uh, almost three years failing and failing wow. because there was no Arabic school in that town, and I only had to go to Duhak if I had to, and it was costing me a lot. So I had to keep continuing studying in Kurdish. So. Yeah. How's your Kurdish now? Uh, it's very good. Yeah. It's very good. But yeah. you paid for it. I paid three years. Yes. Yeah. Um, then in 2010, I moved to Erbil. I was only like, my parents was giving me only like $25 for a week to spend it in my transportation because, you know, like I was from very poor family. Yeah. They weren't going to, they weren't yeah, going to set you up transportation, on Transportation, food, yeah. dormitory and all these things, you know. So, yeah. And I, then I had to find myself like a part-time job, you know, like, which is, was taking a lot of time with very small amount of money. 
one of my friends, university friends, called me and he was like, hey man, I have two journals, they want to do a story about some Arab fighters, you know? I was like, yeah, you speak Arabic, English and Kurdish. I was like, yeah, can you take them there? I took them there, I didn't know anything about journalism, man. Yeah. Anything. And we stayed three days, we came back, they paid me just like, triple of my salary I was right. like this, a, uh, this is hunting. fucking good you know yeah. and then I was like hey I called him they paid me this amount of money is it true or I said yeah yeah I was like hey if you have any other journals just let me know <laughs> yeah. now and what is this this job is called you know they said like yeah yeah it's about fixer you know like and then I had to go back to my dormitory and search about fixing what's fixing what's right yeah what does fixer do yeah, and then what, what's what journalism? Was this? this was 2014. 14, okay. 14, yeah. You All know, right. like I was doing this, you know, like just translating, you know, like for him, for the same guy, you know. Yeah. Like, but in 2014, I became like, and yeah. You, and you just picked up this English in school or were you hanging out with? Um, in school. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I can in imagine. In school and mostly with journalists, actually. I can imagine you learn Kurdish just fine. <laughs> seems to have the yeah. ear for it. But so I'm, I'm, I'm a Kurdish from Mosul because Mosul has all like Arabs, Kurds, Yazidis, But Christians. you didn't grow up speaking Kurdish? Um, or just not in academic level? Not in academic level. I couldn't uh, read and write Kurdish, mm. but now I can. Got it. Even, you know, there was this Arabization thing in Mosul. We were speaking very broken Kurdish, you know, like... Yeah, like kid Kurdish or something. Yes, uh, when we came to Kurdistan, we're good now. We're good. Even my little brother couldn't speak a word in Kurdish, you know. Yeah, yeah. because that just wasn't the plan. Every Everything, all school was... Yeah. In. I mean, this is obviously... Mm-hmm. A, it's a big issue for Kurds from Turkey, everywhere. It's like... That's everywhere. Kurds, they have a lot of yeah. problems. <laughs> a lot pains, of problems. You know? a, lot of, a lot of struggle. Yeah. And one of them is like yeah. to be able to speak your language and to have the freedom to do it. And yeah. The, the, the... Yeah. Uh, yeah, if we compare Iraq to, to the other three parts of Kurdistan, Iraq is good. Yeah, right. You, you've, got mm-hmm. your, you've got your freedoms generally. Um, mm-hmm. How about that first assignment? So it was going to interview fighters. You were driving toward danger, presumably. You know, like I was lucky because I was with two very experienced journalists, you know, like, and I thought, you know, yeah, why I am here, you know, like, why me among all the students in my university, and or why me among all the young English and Arabic speakers in Erbil? So, yeah, this was another thing, you know, like I was thinking about always there, you know, like, and it's good, you know, like it was very good. And I like the guys there, you know, like they're my friends. That the reason I like my job is like, they are my friends. And I made another like more than 10,000 friends, you know, like. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. because it's not, it's not boring. It's not like you sitting on a table, you have your laptop, you know, like same table, same laptop, same chair, you know, like every day. Right. No. Every day you do different story, different people, different contact. Yeah. It's good. You know, like that's why I like it. So that, and that sense before you would started doing journalism, the, the idea of, of, again, sort of driving toward conflict. I mean, conflict was kind of chasing you and your family. I mean, everybody up here for many years. Um, but was there any part of you was like, I don't know if I should, uh, I mean, or your family or, you know, it's like, why, why am I, why am I going toward the shooting when I should be leaving? driving towards the, the conflict? It's, yeah. it's so weird, you know, like you always think, you know, like, but once you get there, first 30 minutes is just like, 
why I'm here. You know, like after that, it becomes fun actually, but you don't know when it happens. You're not sure when it's going to flip the yeah. switch. You're yeah. like, all right, yeah. I'm waiting for then, this to no, be fun. I, you know, because <laughs> always, you know, like I think, how come I'm still alive? You know, like because just a guy, you know, like few centimeters away from me, you know, like and he gets shot and not me, you know, like, yeah, guys, put him in the blanket, take him back. You know, like I was like, if they give me like 10,000 US dollars a day, I'm not coming back here again. Yeah. Coming back, telling my wife, you know, like, I'm not going to do the frontline things. And she was like, don't do it, please. And doing a behind frontline story, I was missing. I was jealous, actually. Like, oh, this journalist, this piece came out, you know, like in the front line. It's very nice. How come not me? It was not my work. I was going to the front line, not telling my wife. Coming back home, she was checking my studio, you know, like my photos, you know. Wow. Oh, you went to the front line again. Yeah. And kind of I got traumatized you know like because always i had to to uh talk about war and bang bang things you know while sports life music you know like yeah. arabic music you know like i was talking about mostly and sports you know like football and so that's what you would talk about if yeah you had and, your... and and it switched to war and like yeah, this yeah. one is killed this one is that you know like and yeah it changed my wife was like oh you need a break so we decided to go outside of Iraq, you know, like each two or three weeks, you know, like for a week, switch off the phone, no internet, nothing, you know. Yeah. Where'd you go? Uh, mostly Turkey. Yeah. Yeah. How was it? was cool. It's insane. You know, like um, when you are in a conflict and you think about the city close to you, you know, like uh, you think about the be- an ice bed, you think about like cold water if it's summer, you know, like you think about like nice shower. Yeah. When you come to this uh, town, for example, in Iraq, you feel like you're in paradise. But when you go to Turkey, you feel again, you know, like it's another paradise, you know, like it's, you know, for me, it was very good. It was very nice. So a town in Iraq that is not at war is once, you know, is a paradise above your day job going yeah. to conflict and being, because you're, uh, you're oh. often on the road for multiple days. And, um, and then, Something like vacation in a in a country that really isn't it. You know, some days like, you know, like some days we had to cross thirty four or thirty six checkpoints to go to 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 reach the the front line. You know, like sometimes not even the front line behind the front line, staying in the base or in the house. You know, like because there was always front line and second line. Staying in the second line the day after, go to the front line. So you, we couldn't do a story in one day. You know, like most of the time because you know, like the roads well was all blocked broken and uh, yeah so we were staying like for example one week or 10 days there and coming back on the way you know like I, there was a little shop there serving beer you know like in a christian town always they had a small table i was uh, parking there having a beer on the table you know like hennigan all the time and with my journals you know like our journals Heineken and then all the time yeah and there was buses of IDPs. They just came out of the Islamic State. They were coming, like, right, you know, <laughs> close to us. And they see beer on the table, you know, like, one was telling the other one, hey, look, man, look at the window. <laughs> you know, everyone was staring on us, and, like, through the window, beer. You might as well have been standing naked on the, yeah. on the road. Or <clears throat> yeah, actually, after, after yeah. like, a few months, you know, like, of doing the same thing, I had the British photographer with me. I was like, it's a Heineken time, man. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, we said, and he was like, mate, this is not the Heineken. This is the Heineken. Uh, it was double N or triple oh. N. Yeah, it was fake Heineken. It's Actually, I was having N's. for like... Oh, my God. 
That's a, that is a definite nightmare scenario. Yeah. You look down at your beer and find out that there's three ends yeah. on your Heineken. Yeah. And, but, uh, yeah, so I, I, I like the idea of just sort of showing the caliphate. Yeah. Hey, guys. Yeah. Were you having a good time back there? Was, <laughs> it, was that working out yeah. for you? <laughs> yeah, it was most of them. You know, like most of them, they were thinking about like, oh, I need a drink. I need a drink. When they were coming out, you know, like it's also another reason I like my work is like you are one of the first guy or you are one of the first guy to go to the things happening, you know, like. Yeah. For example, when you're the first one who goes to an ISIS base, an ISIS house, you know, like uh, you see this liberated th area, you know, and you show it to the world. So, yeah, when you are in the front line, you know, like the civilians are coming they have to take off their clothes you know because yep. maybe they'll be they have, they carry suicide belts and so they come i just need a drink man this is what they were thinking yeah some of them they were so happy people in mosul they were so happy of being liberated that's not like syria nowadays yeah i mean yeah when you receive families you know like especially the last days they're like we will come back. ISIS will come back. You know, like we went out by an order. Oh, yeah, this is this is good. This is great for us. You know, like for quotes. You know, like for journals. <laughs> but this is not good, of course. You know, like if you guys come back. Yeah. But it's it's way easier. You know, like because you don't become tired of like asking too much questions. You know, or sneak with questions to get some stuff. Yeah. They just tell you. You know, like. They want to get it off yeah, their yeah. chest. Yeah, they are so straight. Well, and so you've obviously done a lot of work in Mosul, but you've done a ton in Syria and other places. Um, you're going on a on a trip to Syria tomorrow. Day after tomorrow. Day after tomorrow, and you're going to be there for a week, 10 days, however yeah. long it takes to get shit done there. But what is it like reporting specifically on Mosul, on, on your hometown? I mean, you obviously nobody would ever have wanted to be a conflict, you know, journalist in their own hometown. Does it, did it feel that different or did it end up being the same as reporting in other, you know, in other parts of the region uh, where you've been fixing it at war? Um, working in Mosul, even in a fixing change, you know, like during the day, a week, you know, like if you're away from fixing, you know, you come back you know, after one week, it's so many things changed. You have to know everything. So you have to know what's going on in all front lines in each street, you know, like. For me, in Mosul, I was so happy, you know, like the first picture I took of liberating Mosul, which is my WhatsApp picture, now I carry two bags of beer, you know, like was a city of uh, Bartola, you know, like uh, liberated, you know, like which the place was, we were going every weekend and almost for hanging out and stuff, you know. It like was like the, the party Even when place. I was not drinking, you know, when yeah. I was a little kid, you know, like I was going with my relatives and uncles. So you feel very good, you know, like I was so happy. So you happy. walked in there with two bags of beers? No, I found it in the shop, you know, like, uh, yeah. You did? Somebody had, like, buried it or something to keep it from the caliphate? Or um, like? They burned all the beer shops, you know, like the the, the liquor stores. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I found this. I found a lot, but I carried this too, you see. Ah, we're looking at the, the photo now. We'll put it in the show notes. That's uh, There it is. There is a man in Mosul with... With beers in both hands, looking very happy. So happy, you see. This is this is how it was. My face here, you know, because yeah. if you notice, there's no civilians here. You know, like it's just liberated. It's part of my city. The feeling of going of working 
in your city. You saw like in the first picture I was laughing. Yeah. In the last pictures was this, for example, Abdurrahman is calling me, he's from Old City. Oh yeah, okay. He's the only one who's alive among his family because all of them, they died in an airstrike. My God. Two airstrikes in his house, you know, like killed an entire family. He was rich, not rich, but like he was living his life, you know, he was even helping poor people. And now he, he has nothing left, no family, no one. I don't know, man, you know, like when you go to the city, you know, like you remember, the city was not just like walls, concretes and blocks. And it was like all about memories, you know, like it's all about marbles, you know, and uh, great people, great history, and suddenly all gone and you have nothing back, you know, like the problem, there is no plan, you know, like. There are lots of plans, but it's been like almost three years, man, like, and no one even started. Yeah, oh, NGOs are doing things, you know, like they're spending a lot of money. In my opinion, wrongly, they're spending them. Abdurrahman just called me. Yeah. He has nothing to eat, basically, in this Ramadan. This is what he told me. Wow. And he's so in Mosul after, now. He's in Mosul now. After three years, man, you know, like, he's one, he must be one of the main victims, like all others. Who is there to help him, and and why why aren't they if no one is? Yeah. So this is another good thing about my job, you know, like know things more than other people, more than the ones who spending like millions of dollars and they don't know about individual cases. Yeah. And they haven't. I mean, they 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 can't get datas, but not s stories. Yeah. So when you go to into a a house in Mosul, you know, like. Yeah, there is a good picture here, or there is like a nice background for an interview, or like... This is what the journalist thinks, actually. But for me, it's like something else also, you know, like, we, I lost that, you know, like, we lost this house. All these people are displaced now. Right, they're not there. They're not there, yeah. And if they don't come back, Mosul is just not... I mean, it it is it it is the heart of the city actually. You now, like, not all Mosul is uh, destroyed, but the heart is destroyed. When the heart is like destroyed, it means like all cities destroyed. It means like the families of Mosul are destroyed because Mosul is like it came out from the old city. It was the old city, and then families move. You know, like they become bigger, and then they move. So oh, everything is there. Everything was there, and they killed everything actually. When was the first time, I mean, the, the real heavy fighting and during the liberation, you were coming in with other journalists on, on the front lines, but then there was a moment when you got to see it for the first time. Is that right? There was a day that you would I have mean, gone in? Like the first time you saw the inside of, or the center city. The, the, the city first time I saw it was, you know, because the fighting was going on like for almost six months you know like or less more or less uh around the city there was lots of villages you know like and small towns to liberate and then yeah the first war i saw it was like with this uh Gogjali and samah neighborhood they are the first neighborhoods of Mosul from east side yeah yeah with the golden division we went in and there was like heavy fighting i saw so many fightings also you know like before that 
Right. But in the city, you know, like the, those two neighborhoods was the first time, you know, like I saw heavy fighting, you know, like incoming bullets. And when you got there, I mean, had you been prepared for, I guess, by seeing what had happened in the outskirts and, and what it looked like to those towns? Were you prepared was, for what you I found? Was, I was thinking it was to be just like walking and liberating, walking and liberating. This is what I was ready of, you know, like the only thing I was thinking about is... IEDs, man, you know, like, I didn't know, you know, like, ISIS d- doesn't want to lose his first territory or neighborhoods to not affect the other neighborhoods, you know, like, yeah. or not affect the other ISIS members. They fought heavily, you know. There was big fighting. I lost some friends, some new friends, because, you know, like... Spending time with Iraqi military. Lo- Iraqi military, you know, like, all the troops, you know, like, this is, this is a part of my job, making friends, you know, making yeah. cont- contacts, you know. Yeah, this was the first days. At the end days, you know, like, for example, if I know this and that guy, I saw him, I'm not going to ask him about, well, where's the other one? I didn't want to hear his dad. Well, he got killed. Yeah, because I heard a lot of that. Yeah. So that's why I was not asking, you know. Oh, yeah. What do you think about, I mean, when you think about, particularly about ISIS and, and you know, people who were coming out and are now in you know, IDP camps and so on after they were thrown out of their territory. Like, how do you feel about them? Like your average ISIS foot soldier? ISIS and Mosul had only one advantage to Mosul. It was after ISIS defeated, you know, like it helped Mosul to be clear, you know, like because for years, whoever had this terrorism ideology joined ISIS, you know, like, and it made, you know, like, and people in Mosul, they were hating him, hating ISIS. And they are so helpful with the security uh, troops now, the people. So Mosul is clean, you know, like by all those uh, terrorist so things. The, the backlash to ISIS is the best thing about ISIS. Yes. Is it like now Mosul yeah. is like realizes there's no sense in doing yeah, anything except yeah. working and with the government. And even if anyone thinks, you know, like now, for example, the young guys, you know, like of the 13 or 14 years old, Guys, they think about doing something like ISIS or like Al-Qaeda or, yeah, they will know their ending is just like ISIS, you know what I mean? So, you know, like the only one who paid for this was the civilian, you know, because uh, they still like displaced, their house is destroyed, they lost members and members of their families, they lost memories, you know, in the camps, you know, like something they never... uh, were used to, and the main pain is they live in, in one of the richest countries in the world, you know, like, and they're displaced in their own countries. Yeah. This is the main uh, pain, you know, like, Iraq is rich. It's rich. It's very shame, you know, like asking people, asking NGOs, you know, like, right. it's all about bad management here. It's rich. It's also incredibly well educated. Uh, it, it is educated, yeah. you know, like, Iraqis, they never used. Uh, I mean, not not never, but they don't deserve to live in, in IDP camps. They deserve better life. Everyone deserves better life. Yeah, but, but especially Iraqis. Yeah, especially you know, they are Iraqis. victims of bad management yeah. and corruption. Yeah, um, and now you're in an environment where Erbil is, you know, a, a safe and stable town, but it's also got a big American, you know, Air Force base here. You've got. Tons of NGOs, contractors. It feels almost like a, you know, quarter-occupied city. <laughs> I mean, level. yeah, you know, like, 
To be honest, you know, if you fly from any country in the world and come and land in Erbil, you don't feel like you're in Iraq. Mm-hmm. You know, because Erbil, they know how to play the game, the Kurdish government, you know, like in this part of the uh, region. And uh, it's good. It's it's educated, actually. And it's, it's m- much more developed than other parts of Iraq. But... If you go down, you know, and then you know, like, what, what the problems are, you know, and how many problems are there for every individual thing, you know. Like, you see a real Game of Thrones going on. Right. So, Erbil is like a little model city. It is, yeah. Um, but it's still very dependent on, on outsiders. And, and again, it's, it's, I, for me, it feels like kind of that shame of, you know. Erbil is, is uh, still getting everything from Baghdad. Yeah. And depending on outsiders. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but still, you know, it's so stable. It's uh, it's good. It's nice to live in. Right. When you have a daughter, wife who wants you to stop going to the front lines. I, I want to. Uh, yeah. I never. <laughs> for me, I never go back and live in Mosul again because you know, like, foreigners are the main target. Foreigners and officials, politicians, and then the second, the third target or second target is the one who work with foreigners. I have the experience with my brother and my cousins. You know, they were like working with the U.S. Army before. You know, they were interpreters. All of them, they had to leave. They had to leave Mosul. They had to leave Mosul. Yeah. You know, like the late 2006, they start even to execute them. Wow. Kill them, kidnap them, ask the family for money. Family pay the money, you know, like, and they get the dead body back, you know, like not the life. So, yeah. So we, I mean, we know this, I think, as a phenomenon from Afghanistan and Iraq, which is also astounding because we've done far, far less than we could and should as the United States and like in helping some of those people come and live in the States, like to deny visas to people who helped our armed forces uh, is insane. Um, but just one of the many, you know, sort of cruelties of, of the last decade. I wonder how you feel about it in terms of your job as media because you know the time that you've been working in media has also coincided with the you know a, a huge set of problems on the media industry back home less support i'm sure you've seen you've heard much complaining if i know anything in the world i'm sure that you've heard a lot of complaining from journalists about what's been happening with their offices back in the states and so on uh, so just to say they're probably less able than ever to kind of reciprocate the dangers that you've gone through, you know, or, or make good on that? How do you look at that? What do they owe you? Or is that the wrong way of looking at it? First of all, like we're independent, you know, like as fixers, you know, like I'm very independent guy, you know, like I work with jo- these journals for a week and then I may don't see him after a year. So I'm not his employee anymore. And all other journals are like that. So they think it's, it's just like a week I work with them. They don't think, you know, like, okay, they gone. But I'm working with another one and another one and another one. Then it's like very dangerous for me, man. You know, like everyone must know that, you know. Yes, the income of fixing is like great. But still, you know, like you don't know when you're going to pay for it. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's, it has very good income. So that's the advantage. You have your independence and your, your income. Obviously, you, you, have, a, you have a thrill yeah, you know, for the like work. Yeah, you know, like you don't have any boss, you know, like yeah. you don't have someone who tells you do this and that, you know, like you have to know where is the story, what's the target, what's the goal, where you can achieve it, just do it, work on it, you know, like, and that's it, you know, like, and uh, I got rejected for US visa, you know, like I was invited by NPR for a training. Yeah. 
I was rejected, you know, and I don't know why, you know, like maybe because I have my brother, the one who was working with the U.S. Army. This is what they told me, because you have a brother there. And I think I'm the only one. Like Your brother one, is in the States. In the and States. And they think you're going to just go. I'm going to stay with him, they thought, yeah. you know. Uh, and I'm the the one percent who was really coming back, you know, like I have my job. <laughs> yeah, the one percent yeah. of Iraqis, you yeah. know, like I have my job. I'm my boss. Yeah, I'm having good income, you know, like yeah. changed my life, you know, like in these four or five years. So. Yeah, right. So I mean, you you obviously are getting a lot of good out of it in, in terms of the the other prospects that you saw because your education was disrupted. You're yeah. like everybody in your generation, like. It, it's hard to get ahead in Iraq. So fixing has helped you do that. Um, but on the other hand, it's not going to provide for you afterwards. So like, you don't want to go back to the front lines. How, like, what's next then? I mean, for me, I don't wish to see front lines, but if there is front line, I'll go to front lines. <laughs> okay, all right, so um, we're, not, we're not making no, any... No, I'll continue fixing, you know, because yeah. when you attended, you attended like, and you cannot leave it. You know, because it's not like, okay, I was an employee in this organization, no one knew, and I had to come back, you know, like, and I had to quit. And mostly, I've been in almost every house, you know, like, uh, I interviewed, like, almost, you know, like, more than 51% of the civilians there. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, there was a huge front line, actually, but, you know, all the stories, you know, like, everyone knows you now in the street, hey, man, you know, like. This is how were you? I, I, yeah. I changed. I changed my name in Mosul because I didn't want it to know my real name. Really? Yeah. Why? For reprisal against your family? Exactly. To come because find you yeah, here? Yeah, 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 yeah. Hi, Abu Ahmed. You know, like, how are you doing? Yeah. Wow. You don't know me. I don't know, man. Like, I feel I saw you somewhere. I uh, when we met, when we liberated, I was like, man, you were so thin. Now you got your belly. You know, you became real Iraqi. You know, <laughs> and. Yeah, so, so imagine, you know, like you saw all these people, so yeah. that's why it's got to change your name. But that also is why you don't want to, why you can't so leave it. So that's why I cannot leave it, you know, yeah. like I'm in it, that's it, you know, yeah. like you became famous there, yeah. everyone knows you. So if you have any other excuse, it will not help. You know? Yeah. It won't help. You are, you know, and, and part of the reason why we're talking is you are kind of legendary for having it's like an calling it an instinct kind of cheapens it because you obviously like you said you have gone and talked to everybody like you work very hard to have the relationships and so on and yet still like you know i've had journalists who worked with you said that he'll just perk up and say we have to go and he's like absolutely right and nobody else knows why but sangar is like he's getting us out of danger and like lo and behold like that position comes under attack. So there's some kind of, I don't know, like how much of it is intuition? How much of it is context? There is something here. You have to understand Iraqi's mentality. You know, like for me, I don't know why it's easy. You know, like in first two minutes, I know which kind of personality he is. You know, sometimes, you know, like I become wrong, you know, like when reading him, but like in the front line, it's something I got used to it. Especially when you have a female journalist, like a... Foreigner journals, you know, like yeah. any f- uh, foreigner, or especially if it's uh, female, the soldiers they try to show off, you know, like I and do things they don't supposed to do. It. And, and they're gonna get yeah, themselves Yeah, you know, hurt like and, okay, guys, don't do it, don't do it. No, no, look at this. For example, when they see an ID, you know, like they try to make jokes with it, you know, like it's not a, something to play with. You yeah. Know? Or they try to do stuff, you know, like in the front because in the front line, 
each front line, you know, like and each house in the front line, it has its special environment. Huh. If you play with that environment, you play with your life. And, and many times, you know, like, I don't know how uh, we were just like happy, you know, like uh, lucky. For example, one day I was in, on the roof. I have the video now, you know, like shooting the videos and stuff, you know, like it was very dangerous because ISIS was too close to us. There was a photographer with me. We came down, you know, like I was like, I'm going down to rest, you know, because when you have, when you have a photographer, it's not like when you have a writer also with you. Just taking photos, you know, like sometimes details, you know, like it just needs the names and details. It's not like a writer to describe, you know, like to see you see extra things and you tell the writer, you know, like or doing interviews and right. stuff like that. Right. So I was like, hey, I'm, I'm going down, you know, like for no reason, you know, like everyone was doing his uh, proper job. He came down with me, you know, like after two or three minutes, you know, like they got a grenade, you know, like and six of them, they were down right in the same place we were at. Sometimes I was lucky like that. Yeah. And many times, you know, I was uh, I was just like I didn't feel happy, you know, because it's clear, you know, like because you are the one who understands the language. Right. The foreigners, they don't understand your language. I was yeah. with Genghis, you know, like, and we were we went to somewhere. Like, this guy's the first time here. They don't know anything. It's not planned. Right. I was like, Genghis, can we go back, please? You know, like, I don't want to die, you know, like, it doesn't worth it. You know, like, for one photo, you die, right? He said, do you feel that? I was like, yes, I do. And he trusts me, you know, Genghis is my friend. We worked a lot in Mosul together. We came back. The guy who was supposed to guide us, he came back, you know, like, wounded. Wow. And two guys with him, they killed. They got killed. So I didn't want to be one of them. It's easy and it's, 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 it doesn't need a smart brain. It, it just needs to be honest, you know, like with your work, you know, yeah. like and not be motivated. Oh, yeah. and because it doesn't make you a tough man, you know, like to go with the, with the wind, you know, like with these guys, you know, like, hey, guys, you don't have any plan. You know, they didn't know, like, who was there? Who was, right. uh, yeah, that was a small example for that. There are journalists who listen to this show. What should they know about being a foreign correspondent and coming in and working somewhere like this with someone like you? Like, what's the good thing? What's the bad thing? I mean, to be honest, most of the journalists I worked with, they were super experienced, you know. Um, in terms of journalism, they are great, you know, like, because for, I learned from each one of them. The only thing they should know, which most of them they do know, is the culture. Mm. Care. The tradition here, you know, like, because when, for, for example, when you put your food, you know, like, uh, on the, like, uh, what you called, you know, like this. And uh, right. Yeah. What, put, what, when you, you cross your legs and put your foot up uh, on your knee. Yeah, on your yeah. knee and. You can't do that. You cannot do that, you know, like. No, it's not. You can't do that, but they will not like it, you know, like, especially when you meet officials. It's mostly for access. Right. Yeah, because they are the bridge between you and the and the, the 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 target, the goal. Right. And or for interview, you know, like it affects them for both sides. You know, like yeah. this is a small example. You know, like if you're interviewing them, you know, they will not be happy talking to you, or if you are there for access, you will not get it. You know? Yeah. Like, and then fixers, we we have to because you've showed them it, the bottom know, like, of your foot. You know, there is one is... thing in fixing. There is no no in fixing. You know, like there's there must be always solutions, especially in Iraq. You know. Right. Yeah, if you have contacts, there must be a way. So this kind of things, you know, like it, it, 
it takes time, you know, like, and sometimes in journalism, like one golden hour is much better than like three days. I have over 3,000 phone uh, numbers in my contact. I lost 2,000 in the other phone, you know, like a year ago, you know, I ch- two years ago. In 2017, I changed my phone. I lost 2,000, you know, like, and now, you know, like the ones I know, you know, like, or I got it from my friends. And God, that's ter- I have 3,000 so far. <laughs> That's a terrifying Almost 3, number of people. And, uh, yeah. um, so, and, and even yeah, just but, a little uh, So many of them are dead, unfortunately. Because these are In all people countries. who were... They were fighting. They, they were, were like officers, soldiers. You know, because we fixers, it's not about like only deal with officers or with officials. Sometimes we deal with even their tea makers. Mm-hmm. You know, they will be most helpful than the officials themselves, you know, like for setting appointments or access. How do you, I mean, you would mention this a couple times, just like kind of being traumatized by this. How do you deal with it? Like, what's your plan? I'm good now, you know, like, uh, uh, I feel much, much better, you know, like, because before I didn't have time even to, to, to do anything else except like helping my journalist friends, you know, like when I'm not doing anything now. Yeah, I have time. I read books, which was not in my plan. Forever, you know, like after dealing, talking, you know, like uh, working with journals, you know, yeah. like I'm doing this. What are you reading? At the moment, um, I'm reading A Movable Feast by Ernest. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's very funny. Yeah. Um, I, I just cleaned that out of, uh, of, of my apartment. I'd had hung on that for 10 years after I'd well, read, read it a few times. I'm totally new, man, you know, yeah. like to this, uh, to reading world, you know, like I was not thinking. Uh, read other uh, stories, you know, like I, even I was hating the news, you know, like when yeah. it was, I, I just wanted to see soccer, you know, like on, on my TV, you know. Well, soccer can so, be a good therapy too. Yeah, uh, now uh, it's good, you know, like I'm getting back to it, you know, but still, you know, especially when I have a foreigner friend, you know, like, or for, I meet a new foreign guy, you know, like they want to hear about that. So they want to hear the tough stories. Yeah, they want to hear. They want to know what happened here. And so it's like uh, some asshole yeah, comes to interview uh, with microphones. Also, and asks my you. my seventy three cousins now, you know, like because I was isolated from them, you know, like for all these three four years, you know, like just covering war. They are like, come oh, on, you know, you changed a lot, you know, really? you're not like before. Huh? In what way? Talking about sports, about like uh, talk about about life, man, you know, yeah. like because. You know, in a way, you know, like I had to attend all the funerals of my relatives and stuff like that. So I saw so many dead, man. People are dying right close to you. Like you see the death, you know, like by your own eyes. So I was getting a message, for for example, from my brother or my wife or we have this relative dead. And I was like, okay, rest in peace. You know, I was not like, oh, wow, you know, like I have to attend. And yeah. I'm saying, you know, it became something normal to me. You know, yeah. like imagine that it became something normal. Tell me the story about the car, because we, we talked about it on the way over here, but uh, I just thought that's such a fascinating, just one of a thousand things to kind of keep in mind in your job. You have a new vehicle. I have a new vehicle. This um, always journals, you know, like they ask a lot of questions and journals, they never have their last questions. So... <laughs> Uh, when we drive to Mosul or where, when we were driving to the uh, front lines and conflict zones, they were telling me, what you going to do, man, in the future? 
I'm living in my future now, you know, like I'm living in the future because I grew up from a poor family, you know, like my financial statue was very poor and I got good money, you know, like out of uh, fixing. So I'm just enjoying Yeah, I bought this big car, you know, like it helps me for my work because nowadays is mostly, you know, like chasing. If you go for any ISIS uh, chasing or something like that, and mostly they are in the mountains, you know. So it's a four-wheel drive, so... Four-wheel drive helps you to to be with them, you know, like, and it's allowed now, you know, like, to take private car with the the convoy, it's good. It's not like the uh, front lines, you know, like, private cars were not allowed to be in the front. Even, like, Humvees, you know, in some areas, they couldn't reach because there was, like, small or narrow uh, allies. So... It's good, and I just want to enjoy it, you know, like, and I just want to enjoy my future. So it's a nice car, but the thing that really struck me was how that affects you at checkpoints. Uh, it affects uh, the checkpoint, you know, like, because they think of, man, it's just, like, makes people respect you more. This is the mentality here. Yeah, it's uh, it helps, uh, okay, they think you're an official Right, coming or so your your it's a, a white big land officer. cruiser. It it looks like maybe it's, it could be a NGO or an official government car. At uh, no, it actually this one does not look like NGOs. You know, like because checkpoints nowadays they are uh, sensitive with NGOs and journals and oh yeah yeah because that's what you don't want to look like when you're that's going what through. I don't want to look Got like. It. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So when you cross, you know, like. And the checkpoints, yeah. even the, your eye contact, your but you know, like it's an experience you get. You know, like your eye contact, your body language, your your salam alaikum. You know, like everything. You know, like it has its own work. You know, like, yeah, yeah. So and is it when you have this car, you know, like you have to know how to deal with it. Right. So you just go. You know, like you're son of governor or you are son of the, one of the big leaders in in the city. You know, like or you are one of the businessmen they know like oh he has great contacts you know like he will pass okay just go so give me give me your best like official i'm i'm going through your checkpoints salam alaikum um it might involve a facial expression. first if you have like a very blonde foreigner you know like you have to not give him the the chance that two or three seconds you know just to look at it because when once they see the foreigners it means to stop and then they check you know like of course i'm going to pass the checkpoint but I don't want to lose the time, you know, like making phone calls or like showing permissions. Right. So just hi, you know, like, salamu alaikum, you know, like with, you know, there is eye contact, you know, you right, use. Very direct. Yeah, to just look at you, you know, and then you just go there, you know, like, and hi, you know, like you don't let him to even look at that. <laughs> the, yeah, the, like you cover, you cover the window with your body. Uh, or like, right, the person behind uh, your shoulder. Yeah. It's not important. This is not yeah, the droids so you're looking for. Yeah, so just go, you know, like, and you show them their very respectful eye. No, like, and then, okay, go. Right. From one important man to another. Exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm now going to keep moving. Exactly. I mean, you said that, and this is true of getting the Mosul now, too, um, and it was unfortunate that you're going to Syria because, uh, you know, yeah. you, were the, you were the one guy who they had trusted to, like, be able to get someone from Erbil, specifically me and, and Jengis from Erbil to Mosul, uh, without any problems, because there's a bunch of checkpoints. Like, my visa stuff is not worked out. It's possible, but not if you don't know what you're doing. There is no no, man. <laughs> there is no... There, you know, there is nothing impossible. In fact. Yeah. It's just like carpenter, and you have so many woods, you yeah. know? Like, 
كذود and do this you know like if, yeah. if you stick but this is also I mean this is also a lesson for journalists because I feel like I would have tried to make a different decision before like I'm super interested to go to Mosul I don't have a lot of time here Genghis laid it out very clearly he's like Sangar is the one who knows how to mm-hmm. do this I don't know the other guys and I'm like then let's not do it they, they are good guys you know they go into Mosul and come back yeah. and they are my friends you know like yeah. I like them They, you know but but yeah. You know, there's just a difference, and that's, you know, not to bring it back to the journalism industry, which is a long and depressing topic uh, at times, but it's like when freelancers don't get paid enough money, they can't work with people like you. They work with kind of, you know, kind of like off-label fixers or people who are newer to the job or promise things they can't deliver, and that's when it gets start getting really dangerous. This is how I continue to work in as fixer as so far. This is how I survived working as fixer freelance journals they were like my main clients mm. yeah i was not you know because even if it is a freelance he or she is a freelance or not you get more than even the staff you know what i mean so you have to to do it like more than 100 percent. yeah freelance journals they have so many pressure yeah on that okay man i don't care okay the deal was two days three days It's not, it's, I'm not the ones who like just work to finish these two or three days. Let's finish the story 100% properly. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So two days, three days, you didn't finish it. I will stay with you two more, three days or two days for free. Let's get the story. Wow. That's why these freelance journals, they recommend me to others, to yeah. others, to others. Even with the, with the staff journals, you know, like I do the same thing. I don't care about that. Yeah. It's something now and, you know, I do it because I don't want to lose my attitude, you know? Yeah. Hmm. And also, this is how it must be, you know, like you have to be the journalist before you be the fixer, you know, like you have to be one of the team. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Freelance journalists, uh, I like them. They are my, yeah, they, they, they are the one who make you a real fixer because they, they have lots of pressure. Yeah. Yeah. They want to sell the, the story. Yeah. Right. They, and you have to live in that pressure with them in order to. to do it yeah, well. Yeah, I have to. Yeah. Would you ever, I mean, would you ever think about trying to be the person with the byline there are better english speaker than me better writers and and so you think the the power that you have is to make sure that the that that those who are coming here to tell the story at least are not fucking it up no they they are great you know like i mean no i don't want to 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 be the writer or the correspondent I'm enjoying this, you know, because yeah. once you have the writer or the correspondent, you always have a boss. Uh, that that is true, um, um, and it, yeah. and I can imagine, you know, in the way. And you always have to deal with the same people. <laughs> yeah, and well, as freelancers, um, it depends. I don't know. I, it it does strike me also that you will have imprinted so many a, more stories yes. as a fixer than you could if you were just out there trying exactly, to sell one story yeah. at a time yeah this is this is what i like about it. it's like yeah. every day something different every day you, you know like it's good to know more than the one who's coming you are working with you know yeah. and they really respect that for example if a journalist come and i work with them i know more yeah about the area about everything about the story they're looking for and this is good man you know like they they respect that you know like that's why you know like they're paying me that's why So I don't want to be, now I don't want to be the freelance journalist, you know, like just looking for a story or yeah. uh, waiting for someone to tell me to do this story. 
Now I'm doing a story every day, almost every week a story. Yeah. All right. Um, well, good luck in Syria. I hope you're Thank able you. to get stuff done. You had said that it's a it's a slower pace of life there, but um, it sounds like you wouldn't mind if it ended up being a, a Thank month you. long trip. I wish trip. I done. I <laughs> you know, like when you go there and when when you work in Mosul, people in Mosul they have totally different ideology. You know, like oh, thanks God, we survived. From there, when when I go to Syria, oh fuck, man, it's just a new start for something else. They're just ready for the next just terrible re- thing. They are already ready, man. You know, like yeah. they are re- they are there. You know, tough people. I mean, man. yeah, I wish their mind changed this time. You know, like I don't think in one month they change their mind, but <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. see how it goes down. Uh, well, I look forward to this. Uh, that work will be on NPR. Uh, I'm sure before uh, before this episode comes out, so we'll put some of that stuff in the show notes. Um, also, yeah. a link to a podcast episode that you did before. Um, but yeah, I you know it's an honor to meet you. I'd heard a lot about you, you and the Thank work you. that you. Uh, that you do up here and and i just can't uh i can't say enough about the importance of what you do and as unseen as it might be on the end uh, on the end side it's uh it's something else so thank you sangar thank you it was great meeting you and it's very nice you know like when you're being interviewed you know like <laughs> then interviewing people you know this is what i used to you know like i've done so many interviews with journals you know like when they do stories about fixers yeah yeah well it's always has its own feeling. It's just like go to Mosul with your friends. Yeah. Or you go to Mosul with journals for work. You know, it's different. Uh, that's good. It's a, I, Often the least interesting people are in front of the microphone. It's good to flip the mic every once in a while on, uh, uh, on the better folks. And the good thing nowadays is like, uh, which I really like, and we as fixers, we appreciate it, is like we kind of getting credit from journals, you know, like be- before, you know, like, for example, in the States, you know, like they know all the news about these areas, but they don't know who was behind it. Right. You know what I mean? So there is, you know, we we run this series on roads and kingdoms, which is interviews with fixers. And we've done them from from Yemen to the Philippines. To this is good now, you know, like people, it, they start to give us credit. It's not I mean, it's not a fancy idea because fixers have always been a part of the ecosystem. But we saw that there was such a hunger for it. Like people were journalists were like. Well, thank fucking God. It's been like, you know, just just anything that can be done to like show that role. Because I think every journalist knows how important it is. They know uh, they they all have a terrible fixer story, which makes them love their great fixers even more. But more importantly, it just would never happen the way that that uh, that it can. So, you know, uh, fixing is totally different than translating. Oh, yeah, Uh, it's totally different. You know, like some journals, you know, like they come. They work, they stay for a week, you know, like they paid for flights, hotels, drivers, you know, like fixing, you know, like, but they didn't get anything and they're not happy with the fixer. And then they changed to the to another fixer. Man, you know, like <laughs> we really, really deserve to, to get credits, you know, like. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and just yeah, to uh, be connected. Or, yeah. So. All right. Well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like I really want to tell all journals, man. Fixing is totally different than translating. The ones who speak very, very fluent English. Don't trust them. It doesn't mean they are good fixers. No, I, I, have, I have seen a couple of those. But uh, yeah, uh, well, get after it. Have a good time in Syria. And thanks for Thank you. Thanks for Thank talking. Thank you. It was my pleasure talking to you. The Trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. 
Emily Marinoff was our producer on this episode. Taffy Mokanyadze, our consulting producer. Alexa Van Sickle is our editor. Music by Dan the Automator. Episode illustration by Daisy D. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Genghis Yar is the producer on this and all of our Iraq episodes. In the time since we recorded this episode, many strange and bad things have happened to the world, of course, but Sangar keeps kicking ass. He won the Kurt Shork Memorial Award last October, really the most prestigious global prize for fixers. The judges commended his, quote, genuine care for those he meets and his strong sense of purpose in giving a voice to the victims of war. Congratulations, Sangar. Next week, Ahmed Najim, director of Iraq's Metrography Agency. We talked primarily about his long search for his brother Kamaran, abducted by ISIS in 2014 and missing ever since. It is a necessarily intense conversation, but Ahmed somehow managed to lace it with more humor and wisdom than I could imagine. We will meet you there. <laughs>